Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. The following episode contains discussions of child abuse. Listener discretion is advised. It's February 5, 1907, and a short, dark-haired man in his late 30s named Corporal O'Halloran is on the doorstep of a house on Edward Street in the city of Perth. He's been called there by the owner, a woman named Alice Mitchell, Alice Mitchell is known to care for babies, specifically babies belonging to single parents who have no choice but to return to work and earn a living. She's cared for dozens over the last six or so years, but she's called Corporal O'Halloran there because she's caring for a baby whose mother has disappeared. She's no longer sending her money. I've been keeping her baby for months, she tells the man, and I've received nothing from her. I keep them for a living, she continues, referring to the babies. I don't keep them for the love of the thing. Her child wants nourishment, and I'm unable to give it to her unless she pays me. Corporal O'Halloran asks to see the child. He watches Alice walk down her lino-covered hallway and collect a baby from one of the bedrooms. The infant is wrapped in a thin blanket, wearing a soiled cloth nappy. He notices the baby is pale, with her eyes inflamed. She's seriously underweight, emaciated and limp, and the policeman notices a sickly smell coming from her. He grows concerned. Alice says the baby is suffering from teething and marasmus, a form of malnutrition. O'Halloran is aware of the rumours. They've been following Alice for some time. But there's never been a formal complaint, perhaps because of the shame so many single mothers feel. What happened that day will start an investigation as authorities look more closely at the home of Alice Mitchell. Where are so many of the babies she was meant to be caring for? I'm Jessie Stevens, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Stella Budricus, author of The Edward Street Baby Farm. This case begins with a young single woman named Elizabeth Booth, who gave birth to a daughter, Ethel, in 1906. 
And she gave birth in a fallen women's home called the House of Mercy. What does a fallen woman even mean? Well, back in those days, it was considered highly immoral for a woman to have sex before marriage, basically. So if she became pregnant, that proved that she'd been immoral and had fallen from grace. And what happened in these homes after you gave birth? What was the process for these women who didn't have a husband or a family to go home to? Well, they usually went into the House of Mercy or similar places about three months before they were due to deliver. They were put to work in the laundry, washing sheets and so on. That helped to fund their stay. And then they were allowed to stay there for three months after the baby was born. And then most of them being single women without families needed to go back to work and they had to leave the House of Mercy at three months. So they then needed someone to take the child for them because they weren't going to be able to find work with a baby in tow. So some women advertised looking for someone to adopt the child or to foster the child. Others like Elizabeth were given the names of someone like Alice Mitchell who made a living out of taking in babies which was quite legal. Alice had been vetted by the Perth City Council and was licensed to take in babies. And there were several other women in Perth at the time who were in the same situation. Obviously, it was a very different time, but did someone like Alice Mitchell need any type of training or checks or anything in order to care for other people's babies? No, the only requirement was that she get a letter from someone responsible like a doctor or church minister to say that she was a respectable person. And then the health inspectors from Perth City Council would come and inspect the house to make sure that it was suitable for caring for children. And then that was it. Alice had experience as a mother, but she had no other nursing experience. And Alice is looking after... Ethel, Elizabeth Booth, as you say, was one of those women who had to go back to work in order to earn a living. And so Ethel was put into Alice Mitchell's care. What first raised the alarm for Elizabeth that things might not be right? Well, Elizabeth was very dedicated to Ethel. She tried to visit her every week. She was a live-in domestic servant, so she only got a small time each week to actually go and visit Ethel. And she was paying Alice regularly the 10 shillings a week that she'd agreed. But she began to notice that the baby was getting very thin and had sore eyes and so on. And then Alice started making excuses for not letting her see the baby. She said that the baby was asleep or she was doing a midwifery case because she sometimes delivered babies as well and she couldn't be disturbed. And so eventually Elizabeth became so concerned that she took a friend around with her and insisted on seeing the baby and was quite distressed by what she saw. But Alice insisted that the doctor had seen the baby and he was quite happy with the way she was going. And then a few days later, Elizabeth got tipped off by the police that they were concerned about Alice Mitchell and removed the baby against Alice's protests and took her to the hospital and she died there the day after she was admitted. Then there was an autopsy which showed that the baby had died from starvation, basically. And you say that the police had been there a few days prior and that's where the tip-off had come from. What had the police discovered in Mitchell's home? Well, it was quite strange because it was Alice Mitchell herself who invited the police 
she met a young policeman who was on his beat one evening and told him that she couldn't find the mother of a baby who was sick. This was another baby, not Ethel Booth. And she wanted the police to help her find her because she needed the mother to pay her so that she could buy medicines for the baby and pay the doctor. So the young policeman told his commanding officer, Corporal O'Halloran, who visited Alice Mitchell the next day. And he saw the baby that Alice was concerned about and was so concerned that he brought a doctor to see the baby himself. And while they were there, they noticed Ethel Booth, who the doctor was so concerned about, he felt that she just wouldn't survive another week. But because Alice Mitchell said that Ethel Booth was under the care of Dr. Officer, they couldn't do anything about Ethel, but they removed the other baby. Was there anything else of note in the home? Did it look like the kind of home that was set up for caring for babies? Were there any other sort of red flags for the officers? It's very ambiguous because the policeman and the doctor who saw the house then claimed in court that it was dirty and that there was a bad smell. And yet other witnesses also claimed that the house was definitely not suitable for keeping small children, that there were no fly screens, that the place was filthy. And yet there were other people like the health inspectors and some witnesses said that they hadn't noticed anything abnormal about the house. Alice Mitchell had her daughter staying with her children and she also had lodgers living in the front room, which was actually against the um, regulations for someone who took in children. And those lodgers were the ones who were most adamant that the place wasn't clean, wasn't suitable for children. When the police officer and later a doctor went into her home and saw what Ethel actually looked like, what was it that was so alarming to them and how was Alice Mitchell able to explain it? Yeah, the baby was extremely skinny and lethargic and swollen eyes and so on, which Alice Mitchell explained was due to teething, which was interesting because that was her explanation for most of the children who got sick. And she had a baby herself when she was 19 who died at the age of six months with a diagnosis of teething. So it was interesting to speculate whether she saw that as a genuine diagnosis or whether it was an excuse. Exactly. And this is the early 20th century. And so we have to remember how much less was known about milestones and what was normal. Was it more common for these sort of illnesses to inflict babies? Because now if a baby were to die in the first year of its life, that's thankfully quite rare and you would do a lot of investigating. Was it less rare then for something to go wrong in a baby's first few months? Oh, definitely. I mean, the death rate now I think is something like one in 10,000 in the first year. In 1901, it was more like one in 10. They were very vulnerable to infections, particularly diarrhea-type infections, for which there was no treatment other than nursing care. There was no IV fluids or electrolytes and so on. Illegitimate babies were particularly prone to becoming infected because they were not breastfed. They didn't get the antibodies that they would have got from breastfeeding. But even breastfed babies in good families often died in the first year. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Jessie Stevens. I'm speaking with Stella Budricus, author of The Edward Street Baby Farm. 
Corporal O'Halloran began doing some research about Mitchell. What did he discover about how many babies she had cared for and how many of those babies had died? Well, he actually had quite a lot of trouble discovering that because Alice Mitchell had a register which she was supposed to keep, which recorded when she received a child and when the child left her and if the child had died. And if the child did die, she was supposed to notify the coroner. But she'd been registered since 1901, but didn't start recording until 1902. And then her records were very patchy up to 1904. And then she stopped recording anything at all. So Corporal O'Halloran had to rely on talking to undertakers who accepted the babies for burial and the um, register of births, deaths and marriages looking for babies who died at that particular address or other addresses where Alice Mitchell was known to have lived. And what came up in his research? Because she had cared for quite a few babies over that period. What did it look like in terms of the death rate of some of those who had been in her care? Well, from what he could discover, she'd had 43 children in her care in the previous six years and 37 of those had died. One of them was her granddaughter, who perhaps shouldn't have been included in the numbers, and two were the children of a woman called Susie Turvey, who was a servant in the house, who perhaps also shouldn't have been included. But nevertheless, there was a a very, very high death rate. How had this gone undetected, the connection between these deaths? You would imagine that if you were a mother or a father who was paying Alice Mitchell to care for your child and that baby died, you'd be horrified. How did it take so long for that connection to be made? Well, partly single mothers were very reluctant to go to the police if the baby did die because it would mean admitting that they'd been a single mother. The other problem was that Alice Mitchell had used several different funeral directors, so they didn't realise how many babies were dying because they were only seeing a part of the total. The coroner wasn't notified, so it wasn't popping up there. And the health inspector, Harriet Lenahan, who was Perth's first female health inspector, who was supposed to monitor Alice Mitchell's house and her record keeping and so on, had for some reason failed to notify anybody that the records were grossly inadequate and that babies were dying at a great rate. The doctor who often came to see the babies when they were sick, doctor officer, claimed in court that he had had some concerns about the death rate, but he'd never actually notified anybody. And that doctor, were there more questions asked of him? Because it does seem that he was the other person aware of how sick these babies were and that it wasn't a one-off. When Alice Mitchell was eventually arrested, was he taken in for questioning or anything? No, he became a witness at the trial as a witness for the defence and the judge did criticise him for not having made any effort to notify anybody but he didn't suffer any consequences as a result of that. Can you describe the trial? Because we're looking at a woman who is on trial for the death of, was it 36 babies? No, actually she was only on trial for the death of Ethel Booth because I think it's a legal principle. You could only be tried for one murder at a time. The assumption was that if she was found guilty, then she'd be hanged. And so she couldn't be hanged for more than one, for more than one death. And what was the response like from the 
Western Australian community at that time? Well, the newspapers picked it up when Alice Mitchell was arrested and it very quickly became highly sensational. There were headlines about baby farming and appalling revelations and so on. And during the inquest that preceded the trial and the trial itself, the public galleries were completely packed out with people wanting to observe what was going on. There was not a lot of sympathy for Alice Mitchell. What kind of person was she when she was on trial and for people who knew her? She didn't have a lot to say. She denied everything that was alleged about her. She claimed that she'd taken good care of the children, and that she'd notified the doctor every time a child got sick and the health inspectors had passed the house, so why was she being criticised for it being dirty? The newspapers portrayed her as being sort of a money grubber who was only interested in money, and she did seem to have an uncomfortable relationship with money. She had had previous court appearances when she was younger where she'd forged a cheque, basically. But it's a little difficult to tell just from the accounts of the court case exactly what she was like because public opinion was so much against her. And what did the court find in terms of her guilt when it came to Ethel? The jury were a little bit uncertain about the evidence before they went out to deliberate because there'd been a lot of medical evidence given which went over their heads sometimes. And as one of the, I think it was the jury foreman pointed out, well, his family had had children who got sick from diarrhea, so what was the difference here? But they did eventually find Alice guilty of manslaughter due to negligence, and the judge sentenced her to five years jail. Partly based on her age, she was 52, I think. He said that had she been much younger, she would have got a much longer sentence, which was an interesting thing for him to say. So was manslaughter a way of the court suggesting that it hadn't necessarily been intentional, she hadn't murdered the baby, but the baby had died in her care? Was that the distinction they were making? Yes, I think there was no evidence that she'd quite deliberately killed the children. I mean, there had been cases previously in the eastern states and in Britain where baby farmers had deliberately killed children in order to increase their turnover and get more money. But it was clear that Alice hadn't done that. As I say, she'd called the doctor regularly. She'd handed the babies over to an undertaker, so she obviously wasn't trying to hide anything apart from the poor record-keeping. Do you think in your research and from looking so closely at this case that Mitchell was just indifferent to these children or she didn't have the skills or do you think that she genuinely didn't care for their livelihood? What have you assumed about her motivations at that time? I think it was a mixture of all three really. I think she wasn't trained to care for babies who were bottle-fed. I mean, she breastfed her own children. She didn't know what food they required or how to manage that. I don't think there was malicious intent. I think she was poorly trained and didn't know anything about infection control and so on. I think she was fairly lazy from what was said. I think she put a lot of trust in doctor officers' advice when she got it. And, yeah, I think she was fairly pessimistic about 
what the baby's life expectancy could be. And so when they died, she didn't feel a great deal of concern because that was almost what she expected. What do we know about the rest of her life, about those five years and beyond? Well, she was actually only in prison for three years because she became unwell and was transferred to hospital and her sentence was remitted after three years. And she seems to have spent the rest of her life just quietly at home with her husband, not making any more news headlines, obviously not taking in any more children because the government had changed the legislation soon after the trial to improve child protection. And she died, I think it's 1919, just from heart conditions. Finally, I wanted to ask where this story fits in terms of the trajectory of Australian history and Western Australia when it comes to child protection. How did this case change how people looked at caring for children and ensuring that things like this didn't happen again? Well, soon after the trial, I think it was the day after the trial finished, there was a big public meeting and people came up with all sorts of suggestions as to what should be done, some of which were contradictory. But the government had already started drafting legislation to change the Child Protection Act and they changed the rules for those who took in so-called boarded-out infants. They had to meet much stricter requirements and rather than having health inspectors inspecting the houses, they now had trained nurses doing that. They also introduced a children's department who took on the role of making sure that children were well cared for. They also introduced the um, children's court at that point. So from having been well behind the other states in terms of legislation before the trial, Western Australia was sort of at the cutting edge afterwards. There was still the attitude that single mothers needed to give up their children because they weren't suitable to look after them themselves, which was that. But I think people got some sense of what it was like for single mothers to give up the children just from listening to the evidence of people like Elizabeth Booth during the court case. So I think there was a bit of a shift in public perception there. And it's interesting that more than 100 years later, this is a story that so many of us have never heard. Yes. In fact, I haven't met anybody yet who'd actually heard the story, although it has been included in a couple of books about Australia's worst serial killers, just as one chapter. And there have been a couple of people who have written PhD theses on it, looking basically at the implications for child health protection. But yes, it's not well known. Stella Budrikis is a retired doctor turned author who lives in Western Australia. You can find more about her work on her website, which you can find in our show notes. You can also buy her book, The Edward Street Baby Farm, via the link in our show notes or at any good bookstore. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Jessie Stevens. Sound design is by Leah Porges and our producer is Gia Moylan. If you'd like to find out more about the show, don't forget to join our online community. Just search True Crime Conversations on Facebook and make a request to join.